Welcome to episode six of the NHS Armed Forces Health podcast, a series that aims to help you, the armed forces community, access the plethora of NHS services available. Through these episodes, we will look at different aspects of healthcare, from leaving service to finding a GP, taking care of mental and physical health, and provision for forces families. In today's episode, we will look at armed forces families, how medical provision works as a family member, and the services and support available to them, to you. For this, I am joined by Andrea Collins, Head of Communications and Engagement, Health and Justice, Armed Forces and Sexual Assault Services at NHS England, Jenny Ward, Health and Wellbeing and Covenant Policy Advisor for Naval Families Federation, and Jess Sterling Yeatman, the daughter in a military family, learning to support and incorporate PTSD into everyday life. Welcome, everyone. We ask all our guests this question. Why are you involved in the AFPPV and why are you here today? And Jenny, I'm going to start with you. I'm involved with the NHS Armed Forces PPV as a member of the advisory group. So I'm there to to represent naval families, that's Royal Navy and Royal Marines families, um, and, and sort of talk about the issues that they face um, that can be similar to the issues of the other services, but can be very different as well. So it's about raising the profile of those families. So I'm tri-service today. Fantastic. Thank you, Jenny, and welcome. And Andrea, how about you? I am involved in the Armed Forces Patient and Public Voice Group through my work at NHS England. So I'm the Head of Communications Engagement for Armed Forces Health. And everything we do as a team, it's really important that we work with members of the Armed Forces community to make sure that their voice is heard, that we find out from them how their experiences of NHS services are and what things we need to do to make services better. So they're absolutely a critical part of when we're planning and buying services and making improvements, developing communications in terms of getting that right and, and working with us. And as as well as that, your husband is also a veteran. Yes, that's right. Yes, he served for 24 years in the Air Force. I can pull on my personal experience and it helps in the work I do. And I, I also feel that it helps build trust when I'm working with people from the armed forces community because we have shared experiences. He has a number of mental and physical health problems. So um, for me, living it on a day-to-day basis is is helpful in what I do, but also helpful when um, when talking to Jess, for example, and, and the shared experiences we might face as an armed forces family. Jess, over to you now. Um, so my perspective, perspective is that I'm offering... The insight to a daughter of a veteran um, who was in the Royal Military Police, who spent the majority of his time in Hong Kong and Germany and during the troubles of Northern Ireland. Um, And I think that this is such an important role because it's often a perspective that we don't hear from very much. I offer a different kind of input to maybe things that need improving or need to be heard Jenny, can you tell us what is an armed forces family? Now, who does it include? And I'm just going to go on. What's it like as a family member accessing healthcare when someone is still serving? And what are the main challenges that have come up from your experience? So when we talk about the armed forces family, we don't just talk about the um, the, the partner and, or spouse of and, and children. 
Um, we talk about the wider family. So we could be siblings. It could be parents of. We could be talking lone parent families. So, you know, where we've a single parent who's serving. Um, so it's it's looking at that wider piece. It's looking at carers as well of of, of serving and veteran uh, families. Um, of, of being inclusive. So it could be looking at same-sex couples. It could be looking at grandparents who are serving, taking care of blended families. Um, you know, we're very careful not to be prescriptive. Um, you know, within the MOD, within, you know, within government, there are some the ways, you know, for some of the allowances and things like that and access. It has to be that way. But for us, you know, my colleague goes to, you know, every passing out parade uh, for Royal Navy and Royal Marines to welcome the parents in to the family, to the community. Um, and I know colleagues in the other federations do something similar as well to say, right, you, you are now part of this community. Um, and that's sort of was they go through phase one training right through to transition and when they become uh, moving to the veteran space. And that's sort of for regulars and reserves as well. I think very often the reserve community um, are kind of forgotten about a little bit. They are that bit removed from us. So for us, it's very, very important that we remember those those families as well, um, because, again, it's that second level of separation if they don't necessarily live near to a military establishment either. Um, so we look at the issues that they might face. So when it comes to accessing healthcare, um, challenges can be different across the services. Um, I'll, I'll speak from a Royal Navy perspective first as the uh, senior service. Um, <laughs> is uh, It's looking at for our families. Um, we do have mobile families. We have uh, people who are moving within England across nations to devolved administrations, going overseas on postings, um, and or living in their own homes. So we're looking at the challenges they might face. Uh, for us, um, our levels of separation, um, our families, our service people can be away for 660 days over a rolling three-year period. So again, it's looking at how families adjust to that and, you know, when they're accessing healthcare. And it's important, I think, for, for the person sitting on the other side of the desk, the healthcare provider, to understand the service life that they have, especially if you have complex health needs or you have a family member with a disability. Um, but it's also understanding that you may be dealing with a family member who hasn't seen their, their their partner or their parent or their son for seven, eight months. The issues around healthcare, uh, we talk about, we, we spoke earlier, um, NHS dental is, is a big issue at the moment. We know it's an issue across the UK for everybody. And Jenny, can I just jump in there? You, you mentioned that NHS dental. Could you just sort of clarify just quickly what healthcare can um, the families of someone serving actually access? Yeah, so for, for the majority of families so of the serving community, they will access NHS services the same as, as a civilian neighbour. Um, there are some who can access defence medical services, depending on where they're located. And if they're located overseas, um, again, that's a different setup. But for the majority of, of our community, they will access the same um, medical and dental services as anybody else. So they will be looking to to register or to to access NHS dental care. The challenges that they face on the mobility is that, you know, they may move into an area where um, there could be a waiting list for accessing care of two or three years. But they may only be there for two years on a posting. So we have families who are dealing with that issue of that they'll never get to get the, you know, to necessarily have the treatment that they need because they're never in one place long enough. Um, and that's a big issue that has come to the fore, especially during the pandemic and the changes that our, our dental dental practitioners have had to implement as well. So that's increased the challenges for our families. 
And there's also, am I right that I think there's a phrase weekending. So families who you're nodding there, I'll let you continue. So for a lot of um, for a lot of service families, especially from the Navy, that our families will settle in their own communities. So they buy their own home. Um, the Navy um, have always encouraged their personnel to buy their own homes a lot younger because a lot of their, obviously their deployments, uh, their operations are unaccompanied. So their families can't go with them. So that the families are then settled into their own homes. And what we then have is a community, which, and as you say, we call it weekending. So they are where the service person is traveling home. Um, it's it, sometimes it's weekly, not always, you know, that they're sort of traveling home on a Friday afternoon, Friday evening. And then, you know, come Sunday evening, they're getting ready to go back again. Um, you know, so it's that impact that has on the family life as well, that they're then trying to condense all of that good stuff into 48 hours when the parent is at home. Um, and, and then the impact that has, and obviously that's been impacted by what we've all been through over the last two years with the lockdown and where we've had personnel who couldn't get home because of regional variations as well. So that's had an additional impact on families uh, whereby they've not been able to access that, but they've not then been able to access their normal support networks either. Thank you, Jenny. And I think one of the main points is there, there is no nuclear family and it's regardless of who you, are, who you are, you are welcome. And I'm just confirming that was included as well, that the families from the Commonwealth. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, one of my colleagues is actually um, an immigration advisor. He went through training so that we're able to offer that support. And again, I'm working with him at the moment on a couple of families who are accessing healthcare issues um, and identifying the, the, the requirements that they might have moving to the UK. Uh, for some who've never accessed something like the NHS before, um, you know, we had some questions come up about how do you get an NHS number? You know, and that's part and parcel. We all understand that if you're sort of, you know, you're born here and this is the only system you've understood. But if you're new into the country, you know, having to get that information out as well and understand how the system works. Um, and if you're new to the UK, registering with a GP, you know, when you have to provide documentation um, can be a challenge as well. Andrew, what are the main challenges for family members accessing healthcare for someone leaving and also for someone who's already left? So I think there's a number of challenges. I think, first of all, it's important to be aware of the fact that if you're leaving the military, you're leaving a lifestyle, you're leaving a, a typically a close-knit community where you've established close friends and your whole family's moving to a different setup. And that's going to be a particularly big change if you've been overseas and that can impact your health and well-being you need to think about where you're going to live accommodation potentially jobs starting up again and on top of that you need to think about the NHS services in your local area so a lot of the challenges we hear from armed forces families are where they're already existing conditions perhaps people are getting ongoing treatment people might worry about what that means if they move to a new area when they leave the military and that continuity of care. So supporting people so there aren't any gaps there that they have that ongoing treatment. So it's absolutely important, as you just mentioned, making sure that people are registered with a GP, that they're not waiting until they need treatment. And we always encourage armed forces families or, or veterans as well, let your GP know that you're a member of an armed forces family, that you're a veteran, because that can be recorded in your patient record. And it helps healthcare professionals understand what you might be going through how it can be difficult with regular moves with some of the pressures you may face when your partner's away overseas but also um, referring you to the dedicated services which are available so although the NHS offers dedicated services for veterans 
those services also support their family members. So when individuals are leaving the military, it's a really good idea to talk to the families federations, get help from them. There's regimental associations as well. All of these different groups and support networks are really important and taking advantage of the Career Transition Partnership Programme as well. The um, NHS also works closely with Healthwatch. That's a statutory independent organisation that's based across England, across different local authority areas, and they champion the voice of local communities who are accessing NHS and social care services. So they are there to help as well. We have a website, the .nhs.uk website, which provides information on all NHS services across England. So if you're trying to find a GP practice or a dental surgery, you can go on there, find your local practice, find out about them and, and register. Because there's a lot of things to think about, but your first port of call is typically your GP. And when you're leaving the military, having that conversation, if you're with Defence Medical Services or you're overseas, about transferring your care anything you need to think about making sure that you've got enough medication lined up while you while you move to a new area and while you're moving back to England so there's no gaps in that continuity of care so lots of different things to think about which which can be quite stressful when you're going through them and from my personal perspective it wasn't too difficult for me it was more difficult for my husband because he'd been in the military since his late teens he really didn't know anything about the NHS at all so I had to help him find a GP practice. He needed help for his mental health. He didn't want to admit he did. And at the time, I found details of the local NHS Veterans Mental Health Service and encouraged him to speak to his doctor. His doctor was fantastic. He told his doctor he was a veteran and his doctor referred him to the service and I had to keep on at him to attend in his appointments. But it, it benefited him. It better benefited the wider family as well so my husband needed more support and help in understanding the NHS and knowing what was available to him really but it does vary very much so um, from family to family independent on which service uh, the serving person was in as well. Thank you and just a couple of points when you, you mentioned there about a veterans families does that also include reservist families if my say husband is a reservist should I also let the GP know about that? Yes, absolutely. Indeed, if you know, it doesn't matter if if your if your husband, if your wife serving, you know, regular reserve veteran, let them know that you're a member of an armed forces family. And just finally, you mentioned there about England. How about the other nations? So, I think generally there will be the the same challenges. The NHS is available across the UK, and yes, if you're in England, you'll be accessing the NHS in England. But similar, if you're in Wales, there's going to be a range of NHS services for you as well. Thank you. Jess, now as a family member of someone who's left service, what challenges have you faced as the daughter of veteran accessing services? And did you, and I suppose he, find the help you needed? I think personally, that question itself is an absolute roller coaster, completely. And I think talking about my own personal experience, I think for a long time, I was in complete denial that I actually needed help. I was always very much in the mindset, why do I need help? I'm not the veteran. I haven't experienced all of this, so I can plod along. Um, and that is just su- it's such a stereotypical view that needs to be broken completely. I think living in a military family, it is like nothing else. It is 
completely different to civilian life. And I think that concept of understanding isn't necessarily there unless you have experienced it yourself. And only because I'm the daughter of a veteran, it doesn't necessarily report directly to that relation. It can be due to a marital status. It can be can be friend of, no, no blood relation at all. And I think that is the thing that people so widely forget that everyone surrounding that one person can be so greatly affected by that, especially when they're then caring or supporting for that loved one. I think in my own personal circumstance, when I'm the daughter, not only of a veteran, but also of a veteran who was diagnosed with complex PTSD, that completely turned my life upside down, more so than I ever could have imagined. And I think that was the biggest shock when I got the diagnosis back in 2017. I I knew what PTSD was, and I had a rough idea and rough understanding of what it was. However, there was no warning or idea actually how much that that turns your world upside down and that affects you completely as an individual. I thought that we'd get the diagnosis and we'd he'd get the treatment that he needed and my life would be back to normal. But actually my life was never the same again. Um, but because you are then supporting and caring for that person 24-7, whether you actually realise it or not, it can be it can be exhausting it can be draining and I think so much of the time people lose their own identity from it they become that one person and everything revolving their life then revolves around that one case which in my case is complex PTSD. You said that he got the diagnosis of complex PTSD but just how did he get that diagnosis? So it was actually very very delayed in him getting his diagnosis Um, it wasn't until probably about 30 or 40 years later that he then got that diagnosis. And it was amidst that actually very, very physical issues that we then came across this mental issue. Um, And we we never would have known that he was of ill health. We all thought it was related to physical problems. Everybody knew that he was unwell, that he'd undergone all of these issues. Um, And they were visible to the eye. But actually, it wasn't until we then looked back and realised how long these ill health issues had been had been ongoing that even himself, he didn't realise um, in terms of the physical physical issues that he encountered, um, they could be diagnosed. They were they weren't diagnosed in the beginning. Um, it was actually due to an error um, on an NHS part that um, he that these then weren't picked up Um But in terms of his mental health, this actually stems back a long, long way, actually until about the age of his late teens, um, which so many mental health conditions do actually stem from. Um, This is, I think, the key difference between PTSD and complex PTSD. PTSD in itself, it tends to revolve around a singular event or multiple events in a very short period of time whereas complex PTSD can actually relate to events over a very long-term time where there could, there could be very, very little, little events. However, they can all stem back to one initial event that just creates the severity of a diagnosis such as PTSD. And Jess, um, when yes. he 
when he got the mental health diagnosis and he went to get that help, did he seek that out? Because I know that sometimes an older generation, I'm not saying your dad's old, but um, (laughs) maybe don't want to go and ask for help. Did he go do that or did he get support from your family? So in the end, um, he did reach out for the help and it was on a, a, a completely random out of the blue time um, due to the, the physical letdowns that he had had. I think that actually stopped him from them reaching out for help due to ill health or concerns he had with his mental health. Um, and it wasn't until I think I think he was out on his on his motorbike and he was out with some friends and he had the complete revelation that, OK, something isn't right and I need help. It was almost like a last straw where he thought, I can't do this anymore. And even though he'd spoken to my mum about it, it was very much a protected thing, especially from me and my brother, because even though we were we were older, older children, it was something that he was so protective of. And he, he was a very proud man, especially, like you say, of this generation. A- anything to do with mental health was always seen as a failure or too taboo. And I think to some extent, it is still in the modern day. Um, And that is what I think delayed him in then accessing the mental health help that he needed. Um, But also within his job role, um, when he left the armed armed forces, he joined the police, um, in which he was actually then later discharged. And he was signed off medically. And um, on the report is that he was signed off from stress and nothing was looked into about this and it was just signed off a little bit too quickly um it was very much yep you're stressed you need to you need to be signed off and very much pushed under the carpet um and I think that's such a big thing about how the armed forces has changed in all in all British army navy RAF everything is that when someone was approached and said that they were uh, suffering with their mental health it was very much go and have a pint, go, just go and tuck it away. You'll be fine in the morning. Um, so when you have those premature stereotypes and you have that constant thought, I think it delays so much on reaching out for your mental health. Um, and especially relating to the family as well. I um, I never even considered the fact that family members or loved ones or friends or those supporting were even entitled to any help. It had never even crossed my mind because your main focus is then supporting that other person. I'm going to come back to that in a bit and I'd like to hear your thoughts on sort of your family involvement in your dad's care. And I just sort of, you know, hats off to your dad for going and getting help when he did. Andrea, what services are available through the NHS for families? So just thinking about what Jess said, we have the we have Up Courage, the Veterans Mental Health and Wellbeing Service, and that's available to service leavers, reservists, veterans and their families. Because we know if we don't treat and provide care for the whole family, it's very unlikely that the whole family is going to make a full recovery. So where an individual accesses a service, the family members will be offered an assessment and where it's identified that there are health and well-being needs they will be supported and then also 
with veterans accessing the service with their permission they will also be involved in the individual's care plan and the case is also the same with the veterans trauma network now that's a service available in the NHS for veterans who have got physical conditions and again it's recognised that family members may need support with caring for them so equally they will be offered an assessment and signposted to treatment. Don't work in isolation. We join up because that way the Armed Forces community gets so much more help and support. And then, of course, there's the NHS in general. The NHS is available to all citizens in England and and across the UK. So we have mainstream mental health services. We have physical health services, social prescribing, occupational therapy, dementia service. The, The list goes on which is why it's so important if you're not feeling well. And like Jess said, her dad didn't know there was the other things going on. It, it's not necessarily the, the proper picture. So being registered with a GP, letting them know that you're a member of an armed forces family often provides a bigger picture in terms of what might be going on with the individual within the family. Where does the Armed Forces Covenant sit? Is, is that kind of the framework which then the services have been built out of? So the Armed Forces Covenant sets out a number of commitments, which as a nation we're obliged to follow. So they um, set out that the Armed Forces community should enjoy the same standard of an access to health care as that received by any other UK citizen. So raising awareness of that amongst Armed Forces families, but across the NHS. So that's why it's important if you let your GP know that you're a member of an armed forces family and you have to move somewhere else, they can help as part of your referral to another service if, if you're having treatment to point out to that service that this individual is a, is a member of an armed forces family and in line with the armed forces covenant, they should be retaining their weight in this position. And you aren't alone. There are, is support there, but you have to let people know that you're... Yes, if we if we don't know that you're a member of an armed forces family or a veteran how can the NHS refer you to these dedicated services? And I know some people worry about perhaps talking about that they were in the armed forces or disclosing the fact that they're a veteran or or thinking that they're going to have to talk about their time in service. The NHS is bound by a code of confidentiality. Your patient record is confidential. Nothing will be shared without your permission. And disclosing that you're a veteran or a family member of somebody who is serving or a veteran is, is really intended to ensure that you get the best care possible that you can be referred to services that are there for you in in your capacity as as a veteran as, as somebody married to a veteran right and just finally what is the veteran covenant healthcare alliance so the veteran covenant healthcare alliance is a group of nhs trusts so hospitals mental health trust community trusts who have all committed to being veteran aware So there will be a a veteran champion within, say, for example, that particular hospital. They will have undertaken training to make sure that they understand the healthcare needs of veterans and the armed forces community. And often that individual will be a veteran themselves. They support veteran employment within that particular trust. And it's, it's intended to give confidence to patients accessing the hospital. So that individual will be walking around wards, finding out if individuals are a veteran. And if they are, they will work 
they will work closely with them and support them to make sure that their service is recognised, that they're linked up with local military charities, for example, their local op courage service. So it's intended that patients get a more informed experience that is considerate of their military background. We have over 101 veteran aware trusts at the moment across the UK and the intention is to keep accrediting all trusts until um, in England we, we have all trusts veteran aware and we are looking to expand that as well to um, ensure that families are included in that care so you know a veteran is one person within the armed forces community there's family members there's serving personnel reserve is there's ongoing work in the NHS to make sure we are improving care and support for the entire armed forces community because um, the experience of one person in the armed forces community affects the rest of the family. Brilliant. Thank you, Andrea. Um, Jenny, I want to come over to you now. Why is it important to involve the family directly in healthcare, both when someone is serving and when they've left? I think the the families provide that transition piece, um, as we've touched on when you're in the military, you you access your healthcare through the military system. You may be referred for secondary care into the NHS, but primarily you are within that um, defence military medical system. And I think understanding what it is, as, as um, Andrew touched on earlier, understanding that transfer over of care into the civilian's world um, and how it operates and encouraging the service person to sign up to a GP and understanding what that means as well. Um, but I think, you know, as we touched on with the Veterans Healthcare Alliance, and the GP veteran friendly practices, they are building up that knowledge base of being aware that the issues that families face as well, the whole family is affected by by a service person and by their time in the armed forces and by any issues that they, you know, that they leave the services with as well. So I think that's for us is that importance of the family having that acknowledgement. I mean, that's the thing that we like about Up Courage is that it includes the family as well. You know, one thing that I often talk about in the mental health space is recognising that service families can have mental health issues in their own right that don't have to be connected to the fact that their partner, parent, son or daughter is is in the services. So I think it's acknowledging that the whole lifestyle, the whole community can have an impact on mental health as well. You know, when you look at families, when you look at children who may have seven primary schools, you know, the impact on how they make friends and how they keep friends and you know, looking at, at spouses and, and partners who may, you know, go through several jobs and, and face barriers to employment um, and, and even social networking and things like that. So when it comes to accessing healthcare as well, it's about acknowledging the whole family. I think in this is is un- that the family can guide that the, the, the parent or spouse through the system. Um, you know, I was recently at a family's day and a mum approached us um, and she was concerned about her son who's serving um, and she and about his mental health. And she didn't know who to talk to and she was quite worried and she said, I don't want to get him into trouble and I don't, you know, he doesn't know. And we sort of talked about the services that are available to him that she just didn't know about because she wasn't really, you know, she didn't feel that she was part of the community. Um, and it was just like just raising that awareness, I think, is key. But it can be overwhelming at times as well of knowing who to talk to and and, and who's the best person to approach at the right time. You know, there are some very well-meaning organisations um, that, that sometimes can, you know, hope to offer support. But if they haven't got that understanding of the armed forces life, you know, when they're offering that support, sometimes that can be challenging as well. So for us, it's key that people, that families know what's available as well. 
Jess, I just want to come to you with your own personal experience. How well known are these services for families and carers? There are so many services out there. But to be completely honest with you, finding that correct support is like trying to find a needle in a haystack. There are so many different paths that can be taken. However, actually the education on, okay, where do I go to find this help? And how do I find this help is another task in itself. One of the things that I would recommend is, uh, I think Andrea touched on briefly, is about speaking to your health professional, speaking to your GP, make sure that you're registered at a GP surgery that's aware of the military covenant, ensure that every, every input of that is addressed. Because when it comes to seeking help, I think it was difficult enough finding help for my dad himself. It took me a very, very long time to reach out for help. And for many years, I was in denial that I needed it. Um, And it took a lot of courage to build that up, even though I wasn't the one with the diagnosis. Um, But when someone does build that courage to then reach out and ask for that help, it has to be handled correctly. And it cannot, they cannot be failed when it comes to this. Andrea, I'm going to come to you now. What's the best way to access the services that are available? I think the first point of call really is your GP. That's typically how you access other services. When you when you go and see a doctor and things aren't right, they can refer you to other services. That said, op courage, which you can contact that service direct. Any family member can contact a service, a friend, or you can ask a military charity or your doctor to refer you. There's other services you you can access too. A really good way to find out what is available if if you want to do some research at home is to look on the .nhs.uk website, which is the NHS website for England, and there's similar websites for the rest of the UK. They've got every service on there. There's directories you can search for things um, you're perhaps worried about. And there's a whole section on there for, armed for, for the armed forces community and a dedicated section for armed forces families, serving families and, and the families of veterans. As I said before, to speak to the families federations, if you're still part of the serving community, they work really closely with the NHS and also with military charities so they can help signpost you to what's available as well and equally military charities we work closely with them so there's different ways but if you're feeling like you need that help I would recommend go to see your doctor or or get registered with a doctor if you're if you're not already registered. And we mentioned this earlier there are veteran friendly GPs. Yes that's right. And yeah to tell us a bit more about those and how you find one. So that means that the practice has received training in the healthcare needs of the armed forces community so not just veterans the wider armed forces family and I keep saying tell your GP tell tell the NHS staff that you're a a member of an armed forces family veteran aware trusts and veteran friendly practices they will ask their patients have you served in the military so it's somewhere you can go as a patient where you know you're going to see a GP who knows what all the services are which are you know the dedicated services for veterans They, they work closely with them they're linked in with with the local charities they can refer you they understand your health needs. Often they are veterans themselves, they might be reservists, they work closely with 
the um, MOD and Defence Medical Services in that area. So it's providing that extra reassurance and extra care and support for the armed forces community in recognition of, of what people have experienced in their life in, in the military, both as a serving person and also as a family member. When we accredit practices, they sent a range of information, training resources and um, GPs and the clinicians and practice staff are expected to undertake training. That doesn't just focus on veterans, it focuses on the wider needs of the family and the challenges which family members may go through. Perfect, thank you. Jenny, what advice would you give to families of service people trying to access information on healthcare and services available? I think, as, as Andrew has mentioned, is knowing what's out there, um, the NHS websites, the Families Federation websites, uh, Veterans Gateway, um, all of those sources, and, and, and knowing what information you need to take with you as well when you go into a, a practice um, to, to ask those questions and to have the understanding of what the Armed Forces Covenant can and cannot do. I think sometimes there could be some misunderstandings about, misunderstandings about that as well. So I think it's having that sort of awareness I think sometimes the challenges are when you start looking for support and especially in the mental health space is that it may be that you're you're close to crisis point you are in a position where you are vulnerable so I think it's it's saying to families you may never need it but just know that this is here you know and have it, it however ways people access the information whether it's on the internet or you know magazines or face to face I know that you know places like the armed forces um, the hives on a lot of the military units, they have great information that's localised as well. So it's about talking to them. I know that the Army Hive Network are developing uh, local uh, fact sheets at the moment for families who've got children with um, special educational needs and disabilities. And it's about identifying what support groups are out there as well that may be military focused, something like the SAFA Forces and Additional Needs Forum group, or it may be that they're specific to the health issue that's, um, that the, the family member has. So it's it's knowing um, where the information is. I think that's the key sometimes. Um, there are various apps. There's the Forces Connect app um, that people can access as well. Um, they can download that that's relevant in certain areas. Um, we have networks like the Sussex Armed Forces Network of tapping into that information as well. So as we say, there's a lot out there, but sometimes it can be overwhelming as well. So it's just about how we share that information with families at the right time and using the right language as well. Um, you know, we, we haven't touched on, you know, the joy of the military and NHS acronyms. Uh, you know, it is a whole different language in itself, you know, and what means one in one thing can mean something very different, um, as I found over my years with the armed forces. When we look at the advice we give to families who are mobile, is to say to them, go and ask for a copy of your summary care record. Ask them to print it out and take it with you so that when you are registering with your next GP, you can pass that over you know, your medical records will catch you up, but there may be a gap. And especially if you do have complex health needs, as, as Andrew quite rightly said, is having the medication ready so that you can, you know, you can take that with you when you are moving as you get registered in your new practice, contacting the, the incoming GP practice as well to ha- do those handovers. So it's for us, it's about identifying good practice. Um, I know my local hospital in West Norfolk, our uh, Veteran Covenant Healthcare Alliance Hospital, they are very proud of that fact. They have a very big sign up by the front door as you walk in the main entrance. It's right there, front and centre. They have an um, an armed forces network. So they have pulled together their staff who are veterans and reservists and family members 
so that if a fam- if somebody from an armed forces family does go in there, they've got people working there that they can identify with, that can ask the right questions and speak the language as well and have the banter because sometimes that can be important. That will break down barriers as well. Just knowing that the person that you you work in, you, you who's supporting you and treating you, actually understands the lifestyle. Be proactive. There is a network out there. Go to your veteran-friendly GPs. They'll know what network is there as well as all of the other options that you said as well. Jess, do you have any advice for people, especially children, as someone who's been through this, about getting help and navigating the system? I think the biggest piece of advice that I would give is never, ever losing self-worth and remembering your own value. You must never, ever stop communicating about how you feel because it is so easy, no matter who you are, whether you are a child of someone going through something or the individual person themselves or even from a marital perspective or no blood relation at all, it is so easy to lose sight of your own identity as briefly touched upon earlier. And even though you may not have the own diagnosis yourself, you are just as important and nothing that you feel should ever feel like you are being degraded or second best just because of that. Um, And I think it's been touched upon many times throughout, but um, in obtaining that support and that advice, it is just so, so beneficial to go through a, through your GP or through a professional who can point you in the right direction because support from those around you is essential and it is very important. However, it may not always be in the right direction and they may not always be able to give you the advice that perhaps someone in a GP surgery or a professional who deals with things like this on a day-to-day basis can offer. I mean, Jess, that's absolutely beautifully put. Um, Thank you so much. And I, I love that. Remember your own value and never be afraid to reach out. And so... I suppose, with those thoughts in mind, how has being part of the AFPPV helped you personally? I think that being part of the AFPPV has completely changed my life around. And I owe that all to Nikki Murdoch. She is the reason that I am part of this. And I never, ever would have taken her up on it if she just didn't give me that little push and that bit of confidence that I probably needed. Before she approached me, I felt very alone in terms of my whole situation and thought that no one knew what I was going through and it was such an individual case that no one could possibly understand. And it's not until I joined the AFPPV that I realised that there are so many people out there that know exactly how I feel on a day-to-day basis and they may have slightly different scenarios. No case is exactly the same, but everybody has that that slight link when it comes to the armed forces group and be having this opportunity just allows me to almost represent everybody else who hasn't quite got there yet in terms of confidence or finding that courage um, which I think is so important because everything that I have learned through my own experiences I can then help and input that different perspective to try and stop that from happening to anybody else and ensuring that they get the support that they require. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Keep sharing it. And I know you have made and will continue to make a big difference. So it's wonderful. 
Jenny, I'm going to come to you now. What positive changes have you seen so far from the work of the AFPPV? And what would you like to see change in the future? I think the positive, I think getting to speak to, to wonderful people like Jess, to be honest, and give and having families have that voice. You know, our role as Families Federations is to give that voice to the community. But I think the the PPV group and the lived experience group, especially, um, even after my 30 plus years in the armed forces, working with the armed forces, sometimes you just hear somebody's story and it's just like, yeah, that's why we do this job. That's why we strive every day. And I think that's the thing that I take away from military families is, and Jess and some of the other people that are in our lived experience group is they just want to make life better for the next family. They don't want what they've been through to happen to anybody else. I think that's always what's what shines out to me. And the NHS can't make the changes if they don't know what the problems are. And I think that's what the PPV group has done over the last few years. And Andrea, what are the plans the NHS has for the future? And why, from your perspective, has the AFPPV been so important in that? So I'm going to touch on a a really important document which we published called the Armed Forces Forward View, which supports the NHS 10-year long-term plan. Now, that sets out nine commitments to improve health and care for the serving community, for veterans, for families, for reservists. And the Armed Forces PPV group is central to shaping that. They've helped inform those commitments through sharing with us the views of the Armed Forces community. And they're also helping us with taking forward the different programmes of work. One of those commitments is around providing care and support for armed forces families, improving that care and support. We went out for a couple of months during lockdown to ask armed forces families, so serving reservist veteran families and the organisations working with them, what is it we need to do to make things better for you? What's, What's not working? What's working well? And how can we build on that? And a key programme of work coming out of that which we hope will address a lot of the problems and issues we've talked about today, is the fact that we're going to be piloting a single point of contact service for armed forces families and the armed forces community. And that is somewhere and someone armed forces families can go to when they move into an area, when they're already in an area to say, I need your help. I've got somebody at home, they've got multiple healthcare problems somebody to be there to hold your hand to help you coordinate that care across all those different organizations because that's something we hear time and time again that that's falling down to family members to pull the care together for somebody in their family who was serving who's injured and they are exhausted and they're tired and their health is impacted too it's somebody who can help you when you move into an area so you're not falling off of waiting lists so you've got your medication continuing somebody who speaks military, who understands what you've been through. And they're going to work with local military bases, local military charities, speak to NHS services. So we're hoping that this is really going to start making significant changes for armed forces families because we know it's needed. And we can't do that by ourselves. Again, the armed forces PPV group are going to be central to helping us shape that procure the services, roll roll it out, and we'll be working with military charities and the MOD as part of that. So that's a big thing that we are doing. But alongside that, we're also 
um, improving training, make sure our frontline staff understand the health needs of families. We need to support our staff so they are equipped and they know what armed forces families are going through and how best to support them and where to refer them to. We're also working closely with the MOD, their refreshed armed forces family strategy, and we're linking in with them as part of that to support families as they transition out of the military, but also to support serving families as well. So there's lots of different work going on. So we will continue to support researchers to ensure in particular that we're supporting different families as well. So families, I mean, same-sex families, families from the Commonwealth, from different ethnic communities, understanding their health and well-being needs and some of the challenges which perhaps they're perhaps they're facing in terms of accessing the NHS. So there's lots of work going on. We cannot do it by ourselves. That's why we have our fantastic Armed Forces PPV group led by Nikki and the leadership she provides there. So we work closely hand in glove together and we look forward to continuing that work to involve people using those services. We use them to make sure we get things right. Andrea, thank you so much. The NHS has listened to the AFPPV. I feel all of that work is going to have such a positive impact on the armed forces community. Thank you to all my guests today, Jess, Andrea and Jenny, and to you for listening. And that marks the end of our series for the NHS Armed Forces Health podcast. We hope you have found it useful. Goodbye.